take your Bible and turn with me, please, to Revelation 20. We will be there in just a moment. Some years ago, uh, before my mother went home to be with the Lord, uh, she and I and Aaron and the boys, uh, we would always take a trip just before Christmas. Uh, Aaron and the boys and I still do this. We would always, and we do, we take a trip to Lexington, North Carolina. I lived in Lexington for a good while in my childhood. I was born in Charlotte, and then when, when I was one, my mother moved back to her hometown, Lexington, with my older brother and older sister and I. And uh, we lived there until I was almost eight years old. My mother's people are all from Lexington, and a lot of her relatives are buried there in the old uh, Lexington City Cemetery. That's, in fact, where my mom is laid to rest in that cemetery. A couple of years before mom went home to be with Jesus, uh, we took our annual trip a couple of days, a few days before Christmas, and we went to Lexington. One of the things that we would always do, and we still do even now, is we would place flowers on the graves of my grandparents, my mom's mama and daddy, and then my mama's aunt and uncle, my great aunt and great uncle. Now, my great aunt and great uncle, Aunt May and Uncle Arthur, they were sweet people. They never had any children of their own. They treated my mother like she was their child. So consequently, they treated the three of us, her children, like their grandchildren. And we loved Uncle Arthur and Aunt May. They were good people. Many of you know, I didn't get saved till I was 11. Uh, our family really didn't get right with the Lord until after that. And we had already moved away from Lexington uh, by that time. And the older I got as a teenager, the more a burden the Lord put on my heart for my family members and our family members. And I'll never forget one day, in fact, it was the day I graduated from high school. I knew Uncle Arthur and Aunt May were coming to visit, come to my high school graduation. And uh, the Lord had put on my heart before that to try to witness to them. And there had been one other time when... Um, the Lord burdened my heart, and, and, and I really wanted to witness and share the gospel with my Uncle Arthur and my Aunt May. I surely, surely loved these dear people. They were so special to me and my siblings, my mom. And, um, you know, when you love somebody, the one thing you don't want, you don't want anybody, anybody on, in this world to leave this earth without Jesus, without knowing Jesus, especially those you love those that family members, neighbors, friends, co-workers, people that are very, very special in your life. Make a long story short, there were a couple of times when I tried to witness to my uncle and bring up the gospel. and So this one time, I, I knew they were coming to my graduation and I sat down 
And I wrote out a letter. It was about a five to six page letter. This is back in 1989, spring of 89. I wrote a letter to my Uncle Arthur and Aunt May. I went through and explained the gospel as clearly as I knew how at the time. And I prayed. I mailed the letter to them. When they came to graduation, there was a, a few minutes where I had just alone with Uncle Arthur. And I point blank asked him if he received the letter, if he read the letter, if he understood the letter. Um, he said he did get the letter. He said he understood the letter. He said that he had done that. He had trusted Christ in his life some years before. Um, I really didn't dive too much into it after that, to my own chagrin. I didn't really at the time, at 17, I didn't really know what to say at that point other than, well, I'm glad that you have trusted the Lord. And, but there was really never any kind of outward evidence or fruit in their lives that they were genuinely born again. And that always bothered me, and it bothers me even to this day. I hate to use the word, it haunts me. But it, it, it still lingers in my spirit and my soul. Just a couple of years after that experience, my uncle Arthur died of a heart attack. My Aunt May died shortly after that. So a couple of years before Mom went to heaven on our Christmas trip back to Lexington, we're standing there. I'll never forget it. We're standing there at my granny and grandpa's grave, my aunt and uncle's grave, and my mom was crying. I walked up to her, put my arm around her, and she said as she was staring at the headstone, at the grave marker, she said, Christian, do you believe that May and Arthur are in heaven? And I looked at her and with tears in my eyes. I said, Mom, I don't know. I sure would like to think they are, but I really don't know. And I rehearsed to her that there were a couple of times when I point blank face to face tried to witness to them, certainly my uncle and then the letter that I wrote. And, but ladies and gentlemen, I don't know. I'm not trying to be morbid, intentionally morbid tonight, but I, I, I want you to know, I don't know. You say, Christian, why, why is that such a big deal? I want to say to you this evening, ladies and gentlemen, that there is a hell. There is a place that's the antithesis of heaven. It's the opposite of heaven. Uh, not everybody that dies goes to heaven. In fact, most people in this world who die do not go to heaven. We understand that the only way someone goes to heaven is if they have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for their soul's salvation. Do you realize that of those Americans who believe that the Bible is the Word of God, what we call evangelical believers, that of those who claim that they believe the Bible is the Word of God, only 44%, according to the Pew Forum, only 44% of Bible believers 
claim to believe in a literal, literal hell. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that God's Word is very explicit that there really is a real hell. It is just as literal as heaven. It is just as real, just as literal as Goldsboro, North Carolina. Look in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, ladies and gentlemen, please. And the Bible says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. They were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found <clears throat> written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I want you to notice with me tonight just three thoughts. First of all, notice with me in verse 10, we, we, we see the purpose for hell. Why did God create hell? Verse 10 says that the devil that deceived humanity was cast into the lake of fire. And there he joined the beast and the false prophet. Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus says that hell was prepared strictly for the devil and his angels, the fallen angels, those fallen angels that became demons. That's why God prepared hell. About verse 10 here in Revelation 20, Adam Clark says that here that Satan was bound, that is, his power was curtailed and restrained this was during the millennial reign, Satan was bound. But now, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, now Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire. His power totally taken away from him. As, as the bottomless pit served as his temporary prison during the millennial kingdom, now at the end of the age and at the end of the millennial kingdom, before eternity begins, the lake of fire will be the eternal dwelling place for the devil. Uh, there uh, in verse 10, uh, it says that he shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That means without any intermission whatsoever, without any break at all. Chapter 19, verse 20 says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet. And these both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Brimstone is sulfur. 
the word tormented here uh, in verse 10, it, it, it literally is the word from which we get our word torture. And that's what it means. It's the word in the Greek language for torture. And there, Satan will be literally tortured in the flames of hell, in the torments of hell forever and ever, in the lake of fire. One writer wrote about this verse that they have gone where none ever return. There the devil is cast in, locked up to abide with his allies in wickedness forever. God did design the lake of fire to be the eternal home for Satan the ultimate consummate rebel, the ultimate wicked one throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. But notice secondly, we see the punishment of hell in verse 10. The lake of fire, unfortunately, will be inhabited by people who never received God's gift of redemption through Jesus. Verses 12 and 13, notice it with me, that everyone, all the dead, all the ones who had passed away are going to be standing before God just as there will be a resurrection for all believers. There will also be a resurrection for all unbelievers to stand before God at the great white throne judgment. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 5, Marvel not... The hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good, that's literally those who are righteous and have exhibited righteousness through their lives. Those folks under the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil, in other words, those whose lives are characterized by evil, those are those who are unsaved. These unsaved will be resurrected unto damnation. It's interesting that the literal word there is a word that, that, that Jesus uses here, and it means a tribunal of accusation and condemnation. That there at the great white throne judgment, which is going to be ruled by the Lord, He is going to exercise His authority. He is going to be convening this ultimate courtroom scene of all eternity. Those who have rejected the gospel, those who have rejected Christ, those who died and left this world without Jesus. One writer said, sinners will rise from death to death. In other words, their resurrection is when these deceased sinners, their spirits are taken out of hell and they are brought to stand before the great white throne judgment. Then they will be cast into the lake of fire. As moving from, uh, just as someone moves from the jail to the trial, then to the penitentiary. Hell is the jail. The great white throne is the trial. And they're found guilty before God. And unfortunately, the lake of fire is the eternal penitentiary. 
Matthew 25, 41, Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me. In other words, be eternally removed from my presence, ye cursed, or ye who are doomed, those of you that are doomed and cursed, be removed from my presence into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Listen to what Adam Clark said, the devil and his angels sinned before the creation of the world and the place of torment was then prepared for them. It was never designed for human souls. But as the wicked are partakers with the devil and his angels in their iniquities, in their rebellion against God, so it is right that they should be sharers with them in this punishment. We see here plainly why sinners are destroyed, not because there was no salvation for them, but because they neglected to receive it, he said. They are cursed because they refuse to be blessed. They are damned because they refuse to be saved. Randy Alcorn appropriately says that to some, hell seems disproportionate. It seems like, he said, a divine overreaction. In fact, the liberal theologian Clark Pinnock said this about God allowing people to suffer eternally in hell. He said, surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God. Now hold on just a second. Think about what Pinnock said. What is wrong with what he said? What's the huge problem with denying the existence of eternal punishment? Well, I want to say to you, first of all, it's a gross misinterpretation of clearly revealed scriptural truth. You see, in the Bible, Jesus says more about hell and eternal punishment than anyone else. He also says more about hell than He does about heaven. Then secondly, this false interpretation by liberals and those who want to deny the existence of hell. This is an insult to God's absolute holiness and sovereignty. Friends, the torments of hell must be equal to the horror and injustice and disrespect and dishonor inflicted on the heart and character of an infinitely righteous God. So the better question for us tonight is not, why would a loving God let people go to hell? The better question is, why would a holy God let sinful people go to heaven? And then I want to say that this approach by a liberal theology, it's a devaluation of the infinite sacrifice of Jesus. You see, when we say that God's too loving to send anybody to hell, we totally misunderstand then what the cross was all about. And then I say that it is a blind acceptance of Satan's deceptive ploy. We've noticed the purpose of hell, the punishment of hell, and then the people in hell. Go back to Revelation 20, look at verse 11. The Bible talks about uh, that those in hell uh, go from the uh, small and the great, the unknown and the known, the poor and the rich, and everyone in between. 
If you were to take the time tonight to read Luke 16, verses 23 through 31, we see that those in hell, those in the lake of fire, that they rejected Jesus' offer of full salvation. We'd understand that they are in indescribable torment, that they are fully conscious. We would understand that they do retain their desires and memories and reasoning ability in hell. We would understand that they long for relief. We would understand that they cannot be comforted. We would understand that they cannot leave their torment. We would understand that they are abandoned without hope. And they understand that they will be there forever. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 say that in flaming fire, God taking vengeance on them that know Him not and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These individuals shall be punished with everlasting destruction. That means literally they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Hear me, friend. What makes hell, hell is not the flames, it's not the outer darkness, it's not even the torment. Friend, what makes hell, hell is the fact that God's presence is not manifested there. And what makes heaven, heaven? It's the fact that His presence is perfectly and infinitely manifested there. So here's the takeaway, and then we're going to pray, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, as you think about the lake of fire tonight, see God's holiness in our own sin in a fresh light. If one sin from Adam caused mankind to be plunged headlong into the lake of fire, how horrendous... And horrific is my sin. Number two, think of, pray for, and go after those you know are on their way to hell. Who is that? Number three, live like a person who's been rescued. I've been rescued from that place. I ain't going there because of the blood of Jesus. Ought to live like it. I'm saved. That's what that word means. I'm delivered. Ought to live like it. Ought to rejoice. Ought to share it. Ought to declare it. Boldly in Jesus' name. Ought to pray for lost people and go after lost people. God help us. There really is a hell. That's the so what. That's what God's called us to do, to go reach those right here. Let's pray. Father, motivate and move us and change us because of this truth. In Jesus' mighty name.